This week, as I have been, well, really the last few weeks, I've been reviewing this past year, uh, looking ahead to this afternoon's service, our anniversary service, or our, our uh, annual meeting. Um, reviewing the past year, and looking ahead to this next year, we always need to say God willing. Um, I, am, I am very thankful for this past year, the things that have happened, and I am, God willing, excited about this next year as well. Um, I usually give an annual theme. Some years I have not, some years I have. Um, it helps give some direction, some focus, and uh, help, and purpose, and encouragement as well. Um, I'll talk more about the development of this theme for, for next year, or for this, during this afternoon's time. But initially, uh, if you were here at a prayer meeting in December, I had a, a different theme. Uh, that I looked at. But as I prayerfully uh, considered that, I have settled instead on the top, on the one at the top of your bulletin here. Uh, this is a focus, I think, that is needed for us, settled in the faith and serving the Lord. Uh, thinking about our history and God willing our future, because of Jesus Christ, we have an open door of effective service. We don't have to wonder, do we have the opportunity? We do. It is there. We have it now. Uh, yeah, there are circumstances with individuals that we do pray that we'll get that opportunity. But folks, I think sometimes we think too much about what we don't have or what we could have. And as a result, what do we miss? What we do have, the, the wide open door of effective ministry that we have now. But we need to... Uh, in order to, to, to take advantage of that, we must do what verse 58 tells us. We must be settled in our faith and serving the Lord. Let's consider the first part of this where he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable, settled in the faith. First Corinthians tells us that both what they believed, the Corinthians, and what they lived, uh, the Corinthian church, it could be said of them what Paul says in Ephesians 4.14. They were tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. They were tossed from one thing to the other, and I'll develop that more in a little bit. What we see here when he says, my beloved brethren, he says, number one, that this is for every Christian there. And this is for every Christian here. My beloved brethren, don't you wish that every other Christian was just like you and me? Wouldn't this world be a better place if they were just like us? If they were as perfect as we were? We can kind of think that way, can't we? What we see here is Paul calls them beloved. He has a warm, affectionate feeling for these Believers, a warm, affectionate feeling for these believers, some of which had some really bad theology, some of which had some really bad behavior, some of which forgot the good that Paul did for them, and in fact, were increasingly disliking him. And he, by the guidance of the Spirit, what did he write at the beginning of verse 58? My beloved brothers. Now that's a lot of patience, isn't it? 
That's some serious love. And Paul here, he is speaking to the entire body of believers there. He's not speaking to the false teachers who are leading the Corinthians away. But there's a real lesson here for us. We can sometimes elevate ourselves to a position of God. But when we do that, let's remember how patient is God with our faults and failures, isn't he? How loving he is with us. This doesn't mean that Paul just ignored sin and wrong theology. Nope, he took all 14 chap- 15 chapters to do some correcting in it. He did that because he loved them. Second, there is no other faith. When he is saying be steadfast and immovable, he is referring to their position in relationship to the Christian faith. The Corinthians had a lot of head knowledge, but they were easily led astray. A quick survey of this book tells us some of the problems that they had. They had division and disunity among them. Some said, I'm on Paul's team. Others said, I'm of Apollos' team. He's my guy. Well, he's my guy. And that created all kinds of division in their church. Some of their church tolerated the immorality of another church member. In fact, they didn't just tolerate it. They celebrated it. That's a problem, isn't it? Some of the Christians there were taking each other to courts over issues lawsuits. Can you imagine that? What would that do to our fellowship together if one of our brothers and sisters was taking the other brothers and sisters to court? How would you look at that person when you came in on Sunday morning today? When the hand was stretched out for a handshake? Imagine the animosity that would be there. That's a problem, isn't it? They had problems with marriage issues. Husbands and wives not fulfilling their responsibilities to each other. Some feeling that because they were married to an unbeliever, I have the right to leave. Those are problems. They had problems with Christian liberty, as it's called in chapters 8 through 10. They felt that they can go into an idol temple and partake of food. After all, it's just food and there's no such thing as an idol. And Paul said, well, yeah, that's partly true. But when you go to a place where idols are being worshipped and you're sitting there, you are participating in their worship. You have no business doing that. None at all. That's a problem. Spiritual gifts. They looked at the gifts, the enablements that God gave them to equip and edify the body as something that they got puffed up about. Well, I have the gift of fill in the blank. You only have this gift. Aren't I better than you? And their head was puffed up. They, they looked at their spiritual gifts from their standpoint. And Paul said, guys, this is wrong. God's given you this to edify the body. And what must control you is love for others, chapter 13. That's in the context of these spiritual gifts, chapters 12 to 14. Love must control you. You can have the greatest things in the world, but if you don't have love, what are you? You're nothing and worthless. And then chapter 15, the doctrine of the resurrection. What would you think if somebody in our uh, fellowship time and maybe in our afternoon service 
or we'd take time for testimony, somebody raised their hand and said, you know, I'm just thankful for the Lord showing me that really there's not going to be a resurrection of the dead. How would you respond to that? Would you just be like, oh, they must have been listening to such and such a radio station. I guess that's their prerogative. It's okay. It's not a real big issue. Quite a problem that was going on in this church here. Lots of issues here. A young body of believers. And remember, it's in Corinth, one of the most wicked, godless places on earth at that time. We're just so used to churches all over the place. This was the only church there. The only one. The lighthouse for the faith. And so it's no surprise, as some have said, that there was more Corinth in the body of the believers than the other way around. These are not non-issues. They matter. They're being tossed to and fro. And what a picture that is. When you are in a, a boat or in a ship and you're not, you don't have an anchor, you're being moved here and there by everything. And so Paul, Pastor Paul, as it were, he took the time to lovingly walk through these issues from a biblical perspective on all of them. He didn't say, you know what? I hope you come around to this. If not, that's okay. No, he didn't have that response or attitude at all. As Christians, they needed to stop that wrong living or turn away from that wrong teaching and they needed to embrace Christ-like living and Christ-like uh, belief. Why? What was at stake? What was at stake was not only their souls, but what was at stake was the testimony of Jesus Christ there in dark Corinth. What is at stake for us here? What is at stake is not only your perseverance in the faith, but what is at stake is a testimony of Jesus Christ here in deep, dark, northeast Ohio. This is a lighthouse. It's supposed to be the, the pillar of God, of the, the, the truth of God, and this matters. And so he says in the third point here, you must be settled in the Christian faith. But this, these words be steadfast and immovable. Steadfast. I'm going to give you three words maybe to write down that help uh, expand and help you see what's involved with this word steadfast. The first word is firm. Firm. The idea of firm is it is solidly fixed. It's certain. You're convinced there's a consistency that doesn't yield the pressure. You're firm. A second word would be secure. Secure. When you're secure in your belief, you are assured uh, in that. You have no doubts. You're unyielding. You are secure. A third word is settled. Settled. And this idea of settled is that concept of being firmly established. Deep-rooted. Deep-seated. It's entrenched, ingrained, and confirmed. This is my home. I am not moving. 
couple of passages of scripture that you could write down that also use the word, the Greek word for steadfast here. Colossians 1.23. In Colossians 1.23, Paul says, If you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. And Peter, 1 Peter 5, verse 9. Speaking of believers in relation to Satan, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brothers in the world. Be steadfast. The next word here is immovable. Immovable. Unlike steadfast, this is the only time this word is used in the Greek New Testament. The only time it's used here. The idea of immovable is you don't budge. You're fixed, you're rooted, uh, you're solid, you're stable. You're not moving at all. When I think immovable, well, when you think of immovable, what do you think of? Or maybe, who do you think of? Well, I can do both the what and the who in a remembrance I have growing up. My brother and I loved to wrestle. We looked forward to Thursday night when mom and dad would go off on their date and we would clear the, the living room. We'd push everything off to the side and confession's good for the soul. We used to watch professional wrestling. And so on Thursday night, my brother and I would clear the room and guess what we would do to each other? We would do pile drivers and body slams and all that wrestling. And then we'd be watching, you know, we're completely sweating by that point. And uh, we'd see the, the car lights coming, quick, put everything together. Mom and dad are home. Is everything anything out of place? Never did that with dad. Why not? I'm taller than my dad now. But at the time, my dad was about five foot 11. And he worked out a lot. He worked out with weights and enjoyed the all that was in, involved with that. Um, his biceps were massive. And so he'd sometimes say to Tom and I, uh, let's Indian wrestle. Have you ever done Indian wrestling? You put, you're facing each other and you put a foot forward and your foot is by each other's foot and you can move the other foot. You can't move that foot and you hold each other's hand. This is how we did it anyways. And the objective was to get them to move their foot. Now, this is not a fair fight at all. I tried to be steadfast. And what's the other word? Immovable. And my dad would just laugh and he'd kind of pick me up and, that's not fair. He's stronger than I am. But that's the concept. Nothing picks you up, and moves you from the Christian faith. What were the Corinthians doing, many of them? They were going from one thing to the next. Easily moved in their belief and their practices by influences, trends, what was popular or seemed best to them. We need to be careful with our imagination, but I wonder if social media was around during the Corinthians' time, what would they have been like? 
And what would have been influencing them? Be steadfast and immovable. Don't ignore that little two-letter word, be. Be steadfast and immovable. The idea of this verb with these two words is this is what must happen. This is what you must be like. This is what must characterize you. Your beliefs and your life. What are some sources that can unsettle you in your Christian faith? I left three here. Uh, first is Satan. Some passages to write down that illustrate this. In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 19. How does he do, what does he do? He can directly influence that. Snatch away the word. A second passage, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 to 14. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 to 14. Satan works through false teachers. They dress themselves up. They make themselves look like good teachers. But they are mouthpieces of Satan himself teaching lies. A third passage, 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. Direct demonic influence through deceiving spirits and teaching. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. So the 2 Corinthians 11, the idea there is, these are professing Christian teachers, but really they're teaching lies. But 1 Timothy 4 is, this is just blatant, flat-out apostasy, idolatry. It's agnosticism under all kinds of different things, uh, ways that that comes through. And this influences you. You hear these things, you read these things, you watch these things. Sometimes it's in your face. Most of the times, Satan's effort is subtle. It's tricky. He dresses it out. He puts a candy color uh, cover to it to make it taste good. And you become like Eve and you know what? That doesn't look that bad. It actually looks kind of helpful. The very thing that God had explicitly said, don't do that. A second way is through unbelievers. And by this has meant the world. By unbelievers. By this has meant the world. Uh, two passages to write down. First, Ephesians 2, verses 2 and 3. Ephesians 2, 2 and 3. We read there that Satan works through unbelievers through their desires, their words, their priorities, the desires, the communication, the things that are important to unbelievers, that affects you. We can be tempted by that. We can go along with that. Everybody else is thinking this way. Everybody else is going this direction. Everybody else wants that. And it's hard to go against that. But what does Paul say here? Be steadfast and immovable. Don't go that route. A second passage, 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. There John says, uh, do not love the world or the things in the world. All that's in the world, love the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So here he's saying, unbelievers, they're devoted to what feels good. 
to what looks good. They're devoted to stuff, the things of this life, to living for now. And aren't we influenced by that as well? A third source that can unsettle your faith is your sin nature. It amazes me that there are some believers who believe, who are convinced that the moment you get saved that you no longer have a sin nature. Folks, if you didn't have a sin nature anymore, guess what you wouldn't do anymore? You wouldn't sin. When we are in the kingdom, when we have the resurrected body, guess what you will not have? You will not have a sin nature and you will not sin. We still do have a sin nature. Praise the Lord, because of Christ, it no longer has dominating superintendence over your life, calling all the shots. Its influence is there, but you, greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. The spirit indwells you. He has given you a new nature that loves righteousness, that loves Christ, that loves the word of God. Some passages that write, you could write down that show the, the continued influence of the sin nature in our life. First, Romans 7.23. Romans 7.23. Paul talks about how it wars against the mind of Christ that we have. Galatians 5.16-17. Galatians 5.16-17. Paul says, the, the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the sin nature are contrary to the Holy Spirit. We sometimes so quickly say, Holy Spirit, who is he? What's he characterized by? The Holy Spirit? And he who saved us and regenerated us and indwells us, he must govern our life. And so we must walk, follow Live by, be controlled by a Holy Spirit, obeying his word and by faith trusting him. But still within us are those desires of the sin nature that show themselves by anger and by lust and things of that nature. A third passage is 1 Peter 2.11. 1 Peter 2.11. Paul, or Peter describes these as those which war against the soul. These are always present, always present. And they will always weaken and move you away from Christ. They will never help you. Satan, the world, your sin nature will never help you be settled in the Christian faith. So that begs the question number five. How can you be settled in the Christian faith? Speaking here to Christians and particularly to uh, Oral Bible Church here, because there's just a lot of assumed things that I'm just going to go past right now. But three things particularly. You have to know the truth. You must know the truth. And by knowing that, I'm talking about understanding it and grasp it. There are no shortcuts with that. No shortcuts. Uh, If school hasn't started already for our young people, it will soon. And you're going to have quizzes and tests, uh, more than likely. And how do you prepare for those? You don't prepare for those by having a cup of coffee and hopefully everything comes back to me. 
You have to study, don't you? You have to pour your mind into it and pour that stuff. It, there's no shortcuts to it. It's the same thing with the truths of God and the Scripture. There are no shortcuts. You have to dig into it. You have to listen to it taught. A second thing. You have to wholeheartedly accept it as true. This is your heart. So you got your mind. That's the first thing. This is your heart. You, how can you uh, be subtle in the Christian faith? You must wholeheartedly accept it as true. You must welcome it as true. No divided loyalties. What did Jesus say? You can't serve God and mammon. You can't love the Lord and your life in this world. A third thing, and this is your will, you must rest your soul on these truths. You are controlled by them. There, are no, there is not two masters. You follow Christ. He says this, and you bend your life to be in line with it. You don't say, okay, I understand it. I, I definitely welcome it. But when it comes to the practice, eh, I don't know if it's that high in my priority list. No. You change your priorities. You change what's important to you. You change what you want. You change what you love. So that it is in line with Christ. That's how you get settled in the Christian faith. And it's not overnight as many have said, there's no microwave Christianity. It just takes time and effort and grace. Number six, why must you be settled in the Christian faith? Why must you be settled in the Christian faith? Well, negatively, if you're not settled in the Christian faith, if things are insecure, what can happen? You can lose it. It can be taken away. It can be moved. You can be tossed to and fro. You'll be like a child who goes from one thing to the next. You can be drawn away and deceived by Satan. You'll be exploited by deceptive words. All kinds of warnings in the New Testament. But positively, why must you be a soul in the faith? Positively, it is the only way that you can successfully fight against Satan, the world, and your sin nature. And when you are settled in your faith, you are enabled to fight against them. When you're settled in the faith, you will have the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, self-control. Do you want peace in your heart? You need to be settled in the faith. Do you have problems with certain issues in life? Are you settled in the faith? If that isn't there, that's going to affect everything else. And conversely, if it is there, that affects everything else in life. Hebrews 5, 12 to 14. When you're settled in the faith, you are able to teach others. And you're able to discern between right and wrong. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 58. When you're settled in the faith, you are always abounding and Christ's work and service. And that brings us to the second part of verse 58. 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We have an interesting seeming contradiction here. On the one hand, be unmoved in the faith. But what do we read on the other hand? Here we read lots of movement for the faith. Be unmoved in the faith, but on the other hand, be constantly moving for the faith. The work of the Lord, what's involved with that? Well, definitely normal everyday life. Normal everyday life. Everything that you do as a Christian must be as to the Lord. What did Paul say earlier in 1 Corinthians 10? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the Lord. Servants were not supposed to be men pleasers, but to please the Lord. Wives should love Christ. I'm sorry, husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives should submit to their husbands as to the Lord. This is involved with the work of the Lord here. Let's look at these two words in verse 58. The work of the Lord and your labor. The work here is pointing particularly to your Christ-given task. The task that Christ has given you. And the word labor tells us that this isn't easy. It's work. And this word, I want you to get this, this word labor, hard, hard work. It is used of Christian ministry. This tells us it's not fun and games. It's hard work. It's not easy. And so let's not make it what it isn't. That's not true Christianity. The only way you will serve the Lord faithfully like this is if you're settled in your faith. So why is Christian ministry hard work? Why is it laborious? Well, think back to, what was it, number four or five? Who are we struggling against? Satan. That's hard. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. What do we, who do we live amongst? Unbelievers and we are not called to be monks and leave them. We're supposed to be faithful in this world as lights in the dark place. But Christian ministry goes against, it's contrary to the flow of humanity. They think it's foolish. It goes against your sin nature, what you want, what feels good, what's, a, what's appealing to you. And so Christian ministry, the work of the Lord and your labor, that's particularly what's in view here. Yes, you're, you're a normal day-to-day life, but particularly Christian ministry. So what are some things involved there? I'm going to give you some examples of Christian ministry that almost everyone here hopefully is involved in. Number one, prayer. Prayer in your closet when you're by yourself and prayer with our congregation or prayer meetings perhaps. Is that something that's easy? Well, there's a sense in which prayer is easy, but you get past the three or four minute mark in your praying time and it suddenly gets, okay, I get distracted and your phone goes off and it's easy to get distracted and hard. Your attendance and participation in our services. You might not think of this as ministry, as the work of the Lord, but it is. You're singing, you're praying, your attention, your fellowship with each other. When you're sitting across from each other 
and you have the God-given opportunity to give an encouraging word from Scripture, maybe to teach, that isn't always easy, is it? Helping the elderly in our church or our widows, witnessing, passing out tracts. All these things are examples of Christian ministry. And Are you working? Are you laboring? He says, that's what we must do. And we must do it, number two, by always be abounding in it. And the idea of abounding is you are outstanding in that sphere. You're overflowing with it. It's extravagant and excessive and abundant and rich. The factory that I worked at when I was in seminary was a union factory. It was in Detroit area. And so if you wanted to work with the big three, Ford, Chrysler, as it was known by then, and GM, you had to be a union shop and ours was. And sadly, the work philosophy that most guys and ladies had there was we do as little as possible to get by. And I know for certain that that is not just found in union shops. You do as little as possible to get by. That is the opposite of always abounding. Always abounding is not doing as little as possible to get by. Always abounding is do more than expected. The work of the Lord is to be prominent in your life. Prominent in your life. And remember, it's not having a position or a title. Prayer, faithful attendance, ministering to one another, that's ministry. You don't need a title for that. And my hackles go up when someone says, I just want this position. I want that title. Christian, give yourself more and more to the Lord's work, not less and less. Don't try to see how can you fit it in if you can. This must be priority number one in your life. Often people will, and I've seen this in different ways, especially this year, you have your priority list of God and family and work maybe or something like that. What's omitted there? Church, okay. I don't like that concept. Has God given you responsibilities in every one of those fields? Yeah. Don't think of it as that. Put it on a plane. Has God given you responsibilities in each one of these areas that you must fulfill? Yeah, he certainly has. And so then it's a matter of you can't do everything. Every one of us has limited resources of time and money and ability. As you get older, you might have more money, but you have less physical ability. The issue is you must make sure that you are serving the Lord, always abounding. It's top priority in every area of your life. There's never a time where you take a break. And he says this of the Corinthians there. You've received a gift from the Lord. And so the question is, are you always abounding in the work of the Lord? And he gives an encouragement last, number three, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Who is he speaking to? 
knowing that your labor, you think he was thinking about 21st century Orwellians here? Well, the spirit is, and it's applied to us, but who is he speaking to? Corinthians, you guys, you right now, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The Corinthians, their spiritual work for Christ was not in vain. Why? It wasn't because of them. It's because of whom? Jesus Christ. That's why. And it's the same thing, Christian, for you. It's the same thing for you. Doing it for the Lord and his glory because you're settled in the faith. Because Christ has won the victory over sin and death, you are able to do work that's unaffected by sin and death. That's a great encouragement. Many times already today, thanks has been given to God for this building. And you know what I did yesterday? As I saw the snow coming down, I don't hear any amens with that, by the way. I thought a year ago, I would be getting ready to go up to the community center, making sure the sidewalks are cleared, making sure the heat's on in there, seeing, remember what was happening in the ceiling at the community center a year ago? How bad is the water leaking through? Do we have to move anything? And we came up here yesterday just to check things out. It's clean. It's bright. I'm thankful for this place. And I know you are too, but 100, 200 years from now, should the Lord tarry, what will happen to this building? Probably dust. Maybe it'll be a parking lot. Maybe they'll have a shopping center here. In Orwell, maybe not. What will happen to the work that you've done for Christ? That will continue for how long? Forever. It's not diminishing what the Lord has provided us and what we put time and effort and money into here. This is a tool to help us towards that thing. But it should help us see what must we give time and effort to the work of the Lord. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you just kind of set him aside. Maybe he's not that important to you. What's that mean for your life? For the Christian, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's not worthless. It's not meaningless. If you're not trusting Christ, what does that mean for everything that you're doing? It is vain. It is meaningless. It's not accomplishing anything of true, lasting, eternal value. Christian, because of Christ, because of who he is, because he's what he's done, what you do for him, it is not meaningless. It means something. It accomplishes something. Though the world's against it, though Satan's against it, though your sinful inclinations are against it, and say, say otherwise, the Christian faith is what you build on. The Bible is true. It is God's word. Christ is risen and is coming again. And he is in heaven. Let's determine this year by God's grace and for his glory that we will be settled in the faith and actively serving the Lord. I'll encourage you, have this verse constantly in front of you. Meditate on it. 
take some time this afternoon or this week because it's on your, bowl, on your daily devotional. Pray through that. Ask the Lord for help. Evaluate your life by it. Let's pray.